the sit rep i'm kelsey and i'm deb and we are so excited to have uh hoon lee now we are you guys are familiar we got to interview him about warrior we are going to be talking about warrior some but we are in particular going to be focusing on c we are so excited you know we are going to be talking about up to episode three hoon thank you so much for coming back on the on the podcast my pleasure it's nice to be back so, uh, you know, a little bit different character, a little bit yeah. different show than Warrior. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, you we've got you and Olivia and Jonathan, you know, mm-hmm. coming from Warrior. How has, you know, can you kind of, I guess, talk a little bit about how you got onto the project and how that sort of transition happened? Or how that felt, I guess. Sure, sure. Um, I I got this job the way I get most of my jobs, which is I I beg Jonathan Dropper for a job, <laughs> <laughs> and he goes, "Oh, I guess so. I I guess that's fine." You know, I was very happy and uh, felt very lucky that uh, Jonathan felt there was a character in the new season that he was devising that he felt would be uh, a good match for me. You know, I'd heard of C, of course, and I'd, I'd seen a little bit of it, but um, it just seems like when, when you see something that's sort of this ongoing concern, you don't necessarily project that. You'll be like, oh yeah, I'll be a part of that one day. Um, maybe some people do, very confident people, <laughs> uh, maybe. But uh, when Jonathan came aboard for the second season, um, it was really lucky for me to go into an environment where there was a lot of known quantity. There was somebody I really trusted at the helm. There's somebody who would, you know, listen to me if I had something to say as well. And you don't always get that going into a job. So um, we started in the winter of we got shut down because of the pandemic, like everybody else. Uh, we picked up again in the um, late fall of the end of 2020. And uh I, I did feel lucky to have um, some work during that time. I know a lot of people, a lot of my friends, particularly the community, were just getting annoyed by the uh, lack of activity and the restrictions mm-hmm. on gatherings, restrictions on theaters. And so it was nice to actually have something to focus on as well. Um, obviously, having employment is great, but also having the sort of like sort of a mental occupation, you know, during this time was incredibly helpful. I think. Um, and then when uh, Olivia joined us, it was great. It was, you know, <laughs> like getting your family back and yeah. sort of in a weird context, like you're sort of looking at each other, like, why are you dressed like that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think I, I won't speak for her too much. I'm sure you'll talk to her at some point, but I think, uh, you know, it was a really nice change of pace for Olivia. She got to show a, a lot of different colors that are different from the sorts of things that she mines for a toy. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it ended up being a really lovely reunion uh, in a very difficult time. I will admit. Are you gonna? I was gonna say I you say, don't yeah, admit I, this. I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna. Yeah, I will. I, I have to. No, I have to admit it. It's terrible, but I was so excited, and we watched it, and we were talking about it, and I was like, "When does when does Olivia show up?" And she was like, "No, she's already. You already saw her." And and I was like, "No, no, 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 no," but. No, that wasn't her. And she's like, yeah, I was like, no, that that girl was like 20. And she's like, no, that was, no, that was, that was her. And That's I was like, Olivia. no, 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 
that's like a 20 year old girl <laughs> that's not no I was like I mean Olivia she's like yes and I'm not I'm not saying that I was like but I know her like like I love her work and that's are you what and I had to like go back and watch and I was like holy shit yeah <laughs> I just got that actually uh, someone just asked me on social media they're like I've seen the first two episodes where are you Really? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't notice I was it like, take a little fall in the front. No, no. I mean, in, I, I, I mean, it's not a ton of time, obviously, but also, you know, uh, this is certainly, um, at least in terms of presentation, affect, mm -hmm. etc. I haven't worn this much makeup since Job. Um, it's just yeah. completely different makeup, um, but the prosthetics and. All of that and the and the you know that beard stuff and all the different kind of costuming and and the the actually even things like the change of affect the fact that you're portraying someone who's unsighted and you know the treatments they give to your eyes you know these things sort of do add up. Uh, it took me a little bit by surprise, but it was uh, it was pretty funny. So and and I think Liv is you know portraying somebody with a very different energy. Oh, uh, yeah. that will go a yeah. long way. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't know why it's surprising. I mean, that's literally like it's sort of your job, right? To be yeah, it's familiar. kind of our job. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. But uh, it it does it 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 does take you by surprise sometimes when you're just familiar with someone in a role, and then you see them, and you're like, oh, oh wait, they, yeah, no, they are really a great actor because I didn't recognize them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're trying to, you know, we're always trying to find roles ideally that allow us to grow and to stretch etc and those stretch th those things can be quite uh subtle actually you know it doesn't have to be you know pretending you have no legs and you're you know got three heads and you're a martian or whatever it can be something quite quite as simple as a, a very different kind of energy whether you're playing somebody who's you know inherently optimistic if you're used to playing characters who are quite dour or quite pessimistic you know those things are great opportunities to to shift things and and play in different arenas. Um, mm -hmm. They're really fun. Well, that was actually something that I was hoping we could talk about because this role is so very different. A lot of the reason is because of those things, those the different physicality of the role and, mm -hmm. and the challenge of playing an unsighted person mm -hmm. in a world where that's the norm, that you're not playing it as a blind person might be played now. You don't have a lot of those, a lot of the physicality that people would would assume in a blind role now if they're not blind themselves. You know, it's you're you're unsighted, but you're moving much more comfortably, and you're you know, and confidently, and there's you're also doing this <laughs> in an environment where your guys are obviously freezing right. because. <laughs> Poor Alfred Woodard. Half the time she can't even speak because she's so cold. It, it's cold in Canada. It is so cold in Canada. They were not kidding. Yeah. The, all the travel brochures tell you that. It's cold in Canada. Um, uh, yeah, I, it's interesting, though, because there's been such a gap of time in, in the story that people haven't had sight. Right. Uh, I think it's helpful to not to think of it as some sort of a um, minimization of a sense or a removal of exactly, a sense. Exactly, yeah. Think of it as a, as a parallel evolution, 
right? Yeah. So what if people it's, had just it's simply the norm? Yeah, it, we we had just come up without vision, you know, like we mm -hmm. that way. Um, but that's really fun too because then you do try to think about what it did mean to sort of use scent or your sense of hearing as a primary sense, you know, whereas, you know, we, we lead with our eyes in how we guide ourselves through the world and how would you do that if you were primarily working with your ears um, and you can make certain assumptions about uh, whether that sense is significantly heightened compared to what we would consider to be normal hearing. And if you kind of give yourself that because it's a fantasy world, then you can sort of exaggerate that and play that out and, and try different things. Um, but it's often the case to just, it was often the case for me at least, that it would just, I just have to keep reminding myself not to give body cues that are specifically visual. Right. Um, that was actually the hardest thing for me is that there's so much that you're used to conveying uh, in your facial expression or your mannerism or your hand movement that's designed to be picked up visually. Mm -hmm. So it's not just that you wouldn't do it. It's just there's no point in doing it. And um, you have to kind of, you know, sort of uh, exactly parse what things are expressions versus mm -hmm. communication, right? So if something crosses your face and it forces, you know, your brow furrows, that might be a very natural expression. But if you're trying to give someone a look, that would never be received. Right, right. So you have to make that distinction. And that's that was really fun. I mean, it was a really different experience and I really enjoyed it. Um, obviously, it gives you a huge amount of respect for anybody that, that grows up with... Um, you know, a different set of variables in their mm -hmm. sensory out, you know, their sensory capabilities and you kind of go, wow, this is, this is really different for me. And I feel completely lost and vulnerable at the beginning. And then you start to figure some things out and you kind of see where those things are interesting and what different things it gives you. Um, yeah, I really enjoyed that experience. Yeah. I think the world building was really, really unique and interesting in the way that they did that because it was something we had talked about was, in the beginning of the first season, that was some one of those things that you sort of as a viewer had to adjust to because your initial response is like, wow, this would be terrifying to live in a world where you can't see mm -hmm. and you're having to go and do battle or mm -hmm. like travel. And but but it wouldn't be to them because that's just the norm. That's just yeah. how things go. So I'm curious from your like coming in it, like walking into this world that has you know you're seeing the world building and how you have to move and you're a witch hunter and you're having to you know or do these fights and stuff and what you sort of found was like as they were explaining you know here is how you would fight or here is how we would choreograph a fight or riding or traveling what what kind of parts of the world building you found most interesting um, well, having seen the first season and sort of uh, having enjoyed how much of it was outdoors and in these incredible, you know, these incredible panoramic environments, um, I liked that there was a contrast now into this more urban sort of setting and that in, in doing that and showing the dynamic range of those environments, you, you stretch the dimensions of the entire world, right? You, you see what's possible in this world. And so 
just by showing a different aspect in that way, you imply a much larger world. And now I think they, they now have room to go even further. So now because they've shown a completely different environs, they can, they can do that again. And it won't be, it will be, if anything, almost expected, right? Yeah. Uh, and so that I thought was really interesting in what it did for um, the new people, I think, especially coming in, is that it also afforded us a little bit of license to create something on our own. Because if the world is bigger than you're drawing from other people, you know, we are, we are trying to um, find our way in the production with a pre-established set of rules and conventions and chemistry that's already been built and all of these things. And so by expanding the world, you also uh, create a little bit more running room for the new people that are coming into it. Um, and so one thing I liked was that you know, my character Toad, I think, has a certain kind of weariness about him mm -hmm. and a sort of um, sort of like a almost like a blue collar pragmatism uh, about him. And I enjoyed that because, again, it was one of those things that I think set a little bit of a contrast to some of the the the, the sort of affects of the other characters mm -hmm. where there's these sort of heightened stakes. You know, you're dealing with royalty, you're dealing with, mm -hmm. you know, heroes, you know, these sorts of things. And then to have sort of the equivalent of a regular Joe in that mix, again, kind of stretches that canvas a little bit. And now you, you kind of have different sorts of um, uh, poles to, to ping between in order to, to find what the population is really composed of. So I liked that. I liked that there was running room there. Um, and I think in particular, because Toad interacts so strongly with Kofun, mm -hmm. um, there's a yeah, like that, that the ability to sort of play into that more grounded and slightly more, you know, earthy, no nonsense sort of it's character. Very pragmatic. It's like, yeah. look, I get it. We're supposed yeah. to like burn them or kill exactly. them or whatever, but this is what we're, this is just what we're going to do. Yeah. Yeah. Do and it, it also, you get out of my, you know, get and that get possibility opens up something else, which is, and, and something I talked to Jonathan about was just like, I don't know if he fully agreed, but we at least had the conversation. But it, you know, if you encounter someone like that with Toad, the question remains: like, is, is he actually a true believer? You know, exactly. Or is, yeah, he, that's... or is he just trying to get to pension? You know, right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. trying to, you know, get home at night. And yeah. I think that that's important because you have, you know, we're we're dealing with a large population of people, mm -hmm. and right. people are people. You know, ultimately, yeah. people are people. They have a wide range of different perspectives and beliefs, and you know. Um, levels of enthusiasm or or faith uh and so i liked being a character in this world that maybe could portray a slightly different perspective on that well and we have at the end of episode three he had a pretty big decision to make mm. you know yeah and i think that exactly what you just said is what is what is he trying to do is he just want to get through this and collect his pension or does he believe in the job that he has? Right, you right, know? right. Even though it isn't what the job has been all along, now all of a sudden it's completely flipped. Is his duty more important than his ultimate goals? And yeah. now yeah. we have this wild card of Dax still yeah. being out there. Yeah. So how is that going to impact Toad? Yeah, I, and the reason why I think that flexibility or the variability of uh, of beliefs is important, you know, and honestly, it's what we're kind of seeing in the world now, you know, you're, 
you're often seeing people that are putting forth a position, you're not sure where their credences actually lie. You're not, you're not exactly sure what they actually believe in their heart of hearts or whether they're grabbing a reason out of convenience or because it justifies an emotional posture or a, an emotional stance they, that they feel strongly and they, are, they, they feel the need to validate in some way. We're seeing this kind of across the board. And so having a character where you can play with that potential I think is really useful. So at the end of three, uh, you know, you're looking at somebody who is conflicted. Toad in this particular case is conflicted, not just because of um, the fact that he has to, you know, come into conflict with his own people, but also he's directly addressing uh, a built-in sort of contradiction in his role which is the role is created for a, a purpose, but it is a military role. You know, it is a role where there is a hierarchy and your survival, like in the military, depends on you unquestioningly obeying that hierarchy, you know? And uh, I like that, you know, that because underneath all of that is, well, he could have made any choice. Mm -hmm. So is he making that choice because he actually believes it or is he making that choice because he feels something different? And we don't know that, you know, but that, again, creates a space to sort of look and investigate and hopefully learn more. I think one of the things that I like about C a lot is, um, you know, it, it's a huge cast and a lot of the show is really just brutally violent. <laughs> it is so violent. And I, I think know, ramped I, it up so much this season. Like, I don't know. I've heard this from several quarters and you know maybe it's just how i was raised in television but i'm like is it is it that oh my god it, it <laughs> is then, i mean I feel of like course the, we're coming from like banshee and strike back and so it's maybe not but like compared i mean it's not like it, it wasn't it's not it, like pg from last season but i will just say both of us were like holy shit yeah, you know, it, that that's such an interesting, I feel very strongly that I've become desensitized to it just because, uh, not only because of the types of shows I've done, but, you know, I see how everything's made, mm -hmm, you know, exactly, so, yeah. you know, it's like, how many, how, how often are you going to be shocked by a decapitated head if you feel like 12? Right? Um, and so I, I don't have a good barometer for that. And so when people told me they felt like it was super violent, I was like, oh, really? <laughs> I didn't realize it was that violent. Um, you know, yeah. it's not even, it's not that it's just violent. Right. I mean, there's a lot of shows that are just violent. Mm. It's the type of violence mm. because of the fact that everything is one-on-one -on -one or close quarter combat. Mm -hmm. Everything is very personal. Mm -hmm. You can't, you know, with the exception of, of um, Haniwa, who got to shoot some arrows, mm -hmm. almost everything is just one-on-one, -on -one brutal it's, it's killing. Like, you yeah. know, yeah, this, yeah. That, that, yeah. Yeah. And then when you take it up a notch and decide, okay, now we're going to torture people. And mm -hmm. rip his, and that sound of like the back mm. and the, ooh, <laughs> it's a lot. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I, I mean, it all makes logical sense, right? There's always this question of, uh, and actually the the stunt team, uh, John Valera and those guys and uh, Keanu Lamb, they were, you know, they think about these things very deeply uh, and about how 
what it means to develop a fighting style where um, visual range really has to be sort of modulated very strongly. Um, and that was, again, really, really fun because I've had a decent amount of, of action work in my career and um, you just do the best you can, but you know, you're often put in the position where you're, you know, learning from experts, you know, people who have been studying it their entire lives. And all you're trying to do is like not embarrass yourself or make their choreography look stupid. <laughs> um, and there was something nice about having this different layer on it where you felt like you, you had to act through the action. Um, it, it just kind of put me mentally in a slightly different place um, where I was worried about slightly different things. And it felt more like uh, a, a continuous part of the acting more naturally than, than sometimes it does. Um, and that's through no fault of any of the stunt coordinators. It's just, you know, we don't do this for a living. We're not trained martial artists and action people that have been doing it since we were six, you know, we're like, act, <laughs> you know, we were, yeah. we were like, like nerds in high school, like in a dark <laughs> closet. No, it is, but the fight scenes in this are so interesting mm. because of that extra layer of the, you know, being unsighted and the way they're so low and, and, centered and the way they use the you know the weapon you have to use weapons and using the surroundings and listening and the dirt and everything is just it's it's very it's it's super dynamic Mm. i love watching all the i mean so it's brutal and it's very bloody but it is always interesting just because it's it's uh it's unique Yeah. yeah And I That's think when you're that. used to things like Banshee and Strike Back and Warrior to an extent, you know, standing 10 feet away from someone and shooting them is very different mm-hmm. from watching six people in one episode get their necks broken. Yeah. You know? right. <laughs> the impact is very different on yeah. the audience. And like Kelsey said, it's far more fascinating to watch this fighting yeah. than any not not as more fascinating than warrior (laughs) (laughs) yeah but there's something to be said for um you know it's one thing to there's still this sort of veneer of um i don't know what you'd even call it gentility is not the right word but there's something that's that seems um slightly less brutal about exactly and combat using martial arts versus like all of these bladed weapons, these yeah. knives, these things that are just like they're, they just seem so, um, they're so vicious, you know, they, mm-hmm. have, they have such tooth. And uh, so I can definitely see that. I I'm, I'm keep thinking about this. I, I don't have the quote offhand, but there's a little passage when in um, the original Dark Knight series that Frank Miller uh, did, uh, where he, uh, Batman is, about to kill like he's about to you know have his last battle with joker in the tunnel of love and he he talks about how we've made it too clean we've made violence too clean right it's too impersonal and there's something sort of intimate about very close quarter combat yeah which um you know in the right hands i think becomes its own language and becomes its own uh, a different type of choreography a different type of of uh of um a different type of intimate scene you know Mm -hmm. um 
between characters. And we're always, you know, whenever I've dealt with, uh, you know, I famously, you know, I have tons of conversations with Brett about this and, and it's, it's sort of like, what do we learn about the characters through this combat? Like what, what can we only learn through combat that we can't learn in any other way? What truth comes out in it about who these people are and, and there, and that's part of what makes it so, um, so close. And because of that, perhaps when the violence emerges from that, it can feel like you know, quite arresting or like a very strong violation in a way that maybe it wouldn't if you were using a tool that is functionally like an industrially produced generic weapon of destruction, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, <laughs> we're just, I'm just trying not to hurt anyone. <laughs> like that's a hundred percent. Like don't <laughs> hurt anyone. Don't, don't like fall over in an inappropriate time and ruin a take. Yeah. So what do you think we've learned about Toad? Up through season three and I mean you've had some smaller little interactions but you did have the one you know big fight scene with your men at the yeah. end of the um, you know I think that there's I think Toad is somebody who um, he has put himself in a place where he gets by by not thinking too hard by not thinking about it too much. And I think that his adherence to his orders are sort of a direct reflection of that. And to me, it made sense in the face of the questions that Kofun makes him ask of himself. Um, So, you know, actually not unlike other characters that I've played or, you know, whenever you're playing, I think whenever you're in a situation where um, you're dealing with some of the primary cast, you know, like the, the, the really sort of central cast around which the the axis of the story revolves you you know the implicit question to me is always um why are we seeing this relationship like what is the transformation that has to happen here and otherwise why are we seeing it there's no point if people leave the relationship unchanged there's no point in seeing it right um so the assumption is that Kofun catalyzes something in Toad um, and in doing so, I think a natural reaction in that scene is sort of to cling to the thing that gives him order. And the thing that gives him order is orders, <laughs> right? <laughs> and so it, he's trying to keep his world very simple, you know? And the idea of uh, if he were to go along with Dax, right, on its face, it means it seems quite clear. That's why. Uh, they don't understand his position, right? Right. But if you were to actually, right. But if you were to play out the implications of choosing the ideology over his orders, it gets much more complicated actually than simply following orders. Right. right? And so uh, I looked at Toad as somebody, it's, it's interesting (laughs) because I had the thought that sometimes when Jonathan and I talk, he accuses me of overthinking Mm -hmm. and he's probably right. Um, but I, Toad in some way is, I think, a, an overthinker who has, or not an overthinker, he's a, he's a relatively intelligent person who has found it necessary to really simplify his thought process. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I can identify with the sort of, you know, uh, confusion that can happen from opening a can of worms that, that ultimately causes you a lot of trouble, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so all of those things are always, you know, they're fun. They're just, they're just toys to play with. And hopefully you find something that, 
that intersects with what the other characters are trying to do with their characters and gives you some sort of little spark or something. Um, but yeah, I liked playing somebody who was like trying to cling really hard to a very simple view of life. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Well, I, I really like, you know, the focus is, is in episode three and all your scenes is really sort of on toad. Mm -hmm. But I think what I took away from that, especially, you know, after Dax leaves and, you know, Toads just wants, just shut up, Kofun. Just stop challenging me. Stop mm -hmm. making me justify my choices. Stop trying to learn from me. And you can see that shift. At least I saw it. I don't know if this is going to hold true. But it's like Kofun finally maybe gets it that he needs to start stepping up and taking care of himself. That, mm -hmm. you know, he's had people protecting him his whole life. And he really doesn't, you know, I don't want to fight. I don't want to learn how to fight. And, you know, the whole time that you're dealing with your man and trying to decide if you're going to kill him, he just keeps yelling for you. Mm -hmm. Doesn't even try mm -hmm. to help himself. And that there's a look on his face, which obviously Toad can't see. But, you know, when you tell him, like, you're not riding with me, just, mm -hmm. you know, figure it out for yourself. It's like the first time he's really gotten it that if I'm going to survive in this world, I need to get my ass in gear and mm -hmm. learn how to survive beyond being coddled by my parents who right. don't, didn't want me to have to live this way. But my sister stepped up <laughs> and, you know, she's pretty much taking care of herself. Now I need to do that too. And so, yeah, you know, Toad's being challenged in that scene, but it's really Kofun that had the, the light bulb moment, you know? Like, yeah, you know, I, I think the mechanisms are slightly different where Kofun has the fight brought to him mm -hmm. and it forces an issue for him. And I think that for Toad, the, uh, the issue is sort of being catalyzed in him, sort of against his will. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it's, it's a somewhat more internal process. Um, because when you think about it pragmatically, like, like with most, um, you know, with like most narrative, right? If you really wanted to break it down in a super pragmatic way, you can end most stories in like 10 minutes. Exactly. Right? Yeah. You don't need to. <laughs> the only reason why it goes longer than that is because you are, um, speaking to the idea that people are wrestling with something, right? So if there was a real, I mean, the, the, re, the pragmatic ending is Toad says, you know what, Dax, you're right. And they kill him and then they pretend something happened. Right? Like, that's easy. Mm -hmm. um, there is the complication that he is royalty, right? So there is that as well. So every little wrinkle that gets thrown in there, the question that Kofun poses to Toad, every new thing introduces the possibility that there's something else going on. And that's why we watch, right? That's why you follow somebody, any characters to, to sort of puzzle it out with them. Um, and when, if, if it's done badly, it's not, it's not interesting, mm -hmm. right? Or it's not, it doesn't feel authentic. It doesn't even have to be believable, honestly. It just doesn't, it doesn't feel authentic. It doesn't feel sincere, right? Mm -hmm. um, but if it is sincere or if it is something that resonates with people, then they don't tend to, I think they tend not to mind that the pragmatic aspect is sort of given a back seat, right? We are watching a, a, a fantasy, you know, a futuristic mm -hmm. fantasy show, 
So anyone who goes in with a lot of <laughs> pragmatic problem solving, I, I think is like, okay, yeah. I mean, if you really want to do that, you should probably stop watching, you know, like everything. You should probably stop watching everything. Um, and if not, then, uh, and I think most viewers are smart enough to understand this too, right? Like you just, you kind of learn the rules of the show. And the only things that really bump are the things that strongly violate those rules, but the rules are their own rules per show. Right. Um, yeah. So I, and also, you know, Archie's a lovely guy and a lovely guy to act um, opposite. So he, I think he gave me a lot of uh, really interesting energy to play against. Um, he's a very uh, sincere dude. He's a very like, um, you know, he, he brings a lovely sort of, you know, movement to the character in the season, especially. I think people are going to be really excited about that. Um, and so to kind of be able to accompany that character on this, on this arc was, was really, really fun and um, real pleasure. So I got lucky with my, with him and Alfred, of course. I mean, Alfred was more like, just like, don't mess up. <laughs> don't mess up <laughs> show. It was kind of like, hey, working with Alfred Woodard, just settle down. Try not to <laughs> screw it up, you know. It, uh, yeah, I think I'm I'm glad to hear you say that because I do feel like last season it felt like his character in particular felt a bit like a lit down. Mm. Um you know, because of the way the plot at least was presented, you know, um, and then you sort of like went through the whole show and you were like, I'm not, I'm not sure the kids actually like, I, like I didn't, yeah, I didn't connect like the way that I, hmm. And then, like, the end was weird at the end of the first season. Like, it just, it was like, what? I mm. don't, like, kind of, you talked about, like, the show violating its own rules. Mm. It's like, you sort of, like, your audience will accept a lot of things. But then there's things that just, when you. It just was too You weird. know what? It, it's just, it, or, or it's, it's, uh. You know what? It's Black Widow. It's I love Marvel movies. I am a huge Marvel fan. I can accept Thanos snapping because I don't know anything about aliens. But right. if you have a giant thing falling out of the sky, I understand how gravity works, right. and that ain't it. Right. I don't right. like people don't survive things that fall out of the sky. <laughs> mm -hmm. Not like that. So so like that to me was how the the end of the first season felt like it jarred you out of and so the this feels it like it i don't know it, it just feels like a it's just better it's back on track <laughs> to me it's, it's back on track so well, i'm glad you know, to hear you I'll, say that <laughs> i'll say this i'll say that like uh you know uh, the first season of any show is about figuring out the show right mm -hmm. we we don't get the opportunity to make the show and then do another draft and then that's yeah. what we get right so we're everyone's figuring it out in real time and so sometimes you just don't know sort of exactly where you're heading right 
and you if the, the value of having people that um, are experienced or a team that you trust or a, a cast that has great chemistry, whatever those things are, whatever assets you have, the value is that you can all go, you know, exploring together and you're, you, you're minimizing the chance of something going horribly astray, right? <laughs> horribly wrong. Um, and so I, I'll say that like, uh, you know, all of the things that I, I anticipate people will enjoy about the growth in season two and, you know, because I was closest to it, like Archie's arc, you know, I, I saw tremendous growth that really gets set up by the stuff that happens in season one. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's all like, you won't really have the full scope of it until the entire series is done. Right. And then you'll start to evaluate all of it, but it's a story that's being written uh, in real time. Um, and so I always have a huge amount of, um, you know, sympathy for the first season of any show, you know, even when I rewatched, you know, warrior, for example, you know, there, are, there are episodes where I feel like, Oh, I, we figured something out between like four and five or something, whatever we figured something out. And from that point forward, it became part of our DNA, but we didn't have it. Warrior's perfect. Well, the first two episodes, were <laughs> but like from then on, it's come on. You know. you know, it's, it's, it's a tough thing to make a TV show and it's a tough thing to, when you think about the endeavor of making a show and I mean, and it don't, I don't mean to put it on a pedestal, like any startup company is like this, right? When you start out the gate, you are learning so many things simultaneously. Right. You're learning the show itself. The actors are learning their characters. The uh, creative team is learning everything from scripts to what the visual character of the show is, the identity of the show is. You're learning what works from a production standpoint. You're learning what your crew is like. You're learning the crew, you know, and you think any one of those things is, is quite a bit actually, um, let alone trying to do it all at once and trying to do it in a way that you, you are making the best thing you can. Um, so the fact that any season gets made at all, the first <laughs> season to me is like, it feels like a minor miracle. Um, and uh, so in some ways I was like, in, in coming in in season two, it's a completely different challenge. I did that in Outcast as well. And it's like you, it's one thing to be part of the challenge of being at the ground floor where you're, you're part of the DNA, the original uh, origin uh, that has those challenges that I just mentioned. The second season challenges are coming in midstream, trying not to kill momentum trying to forge an identity within that group without capsizing what's there. And then if you uh, feel lucky, either because the environment was conducive to it or because um, you, you just got on a hot streak or something, you can subtly, you know, shape the, the environment such that now you are able to contribute to it. You're able to um, augment it in some way. And then that gets carried forward, hopefully, right? It doesn't always happen. And I think I, for me, at least coming into a second season, my first, my first principle is like, do no harm, right? If you're coming into a show that's awful, <laughs> like someone comes in and said, hey, you should come in and try to fix this show. That's a different thing. But I've never been in that position. I've never been like, it's always been like, this is a pretty successful show. Just, you know, don't make it an unsuccessful show. <laughs> like, don't do anything that makes it harder. You know, don't create more friction in in the believability of the show and the cast chemistry all of these things like preserve what's good there and then once you feel comfortable being able to do that then see how you can 
make it um, maybe add something if you see the opportunity. Um, so <laughs> I don't know. I, I just think that the stuff that people were doing in season one, you know, it's all foundation work, you know, yeah. it has to be foundation work. So I, I kind of look at it that way. You know, it, there, there have been shows where the movement goes the other way for certain characters and you're like, wow, they were really center stage season one. They had all this dynamism. They were moving like crazy. And then season two, it kind of tails off. And I, I feel like that's worse. Like to me, that, that feels like, yeah. that to me feels like they didn't know what to do with the character. Mm-hmm. Right. Whereas I think that having a character like, like Archie's character, who is a young man, you know, sort of a, in some ways like this, this guy coming of age, that made sense to me, you know, that yeah. he's in a place where, his superhero dad is sort of saying, don't be me, mm-hmm. right? And yet, if you if that's your dad, <laughs> yeah. how do you not want to be that, right? And so being stuck in this in-between place, it makes a lot of sense to me, you know? Um, and it allows this sort of starting point that is, is a useful alpha to create whatever's going to happen after that. Um, so I think after this season and you know season three, et cetera, all those things, I think that the 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 tale will actually be told in the amplitude of dynamic change, um, not in sort of what happened in any given season. One of the things I think that I've noticed with Apple TV is they're allowing shows to have that time to develop. It's mm-hmm. not like a Netflix where it's okay, you get two seasons and you're gone. Um, <laughs> And it's not like network television where you don't even get two seasons, you get two episodes and you're gone. So Apple's got these really great properties and they're allowing them the space and the time to breathe and really come, you know, really develop into, you know, what's already so good is becoming really great. And I think season one for C was a foundation it ended the season with some cracks in the foundation. <laughs> and I think season two came in and very quickly fixed just, those foundational cracks and is really <laughs> off and running now. Well, so. one thing I, I, I feel is one of Jonathan's real strengths is he he has, I think his taste level is quite high. I don't mean that he's like, um, you know, super elevated, you know, that that sort of, haute couture, you know, artisanal, whatever. He's not making artisanal television per se. <laughs> what I mean is that he has an instinct for what is cool. He has an instinct for what is emotionally gripping and exciting, and particularly in action genres and heightened genres. Um, you know, I think there's sometimes a tendency to give short shrift to those these genres, even though they Absolutely. are the like they are the backbone of our entertainment industry mm-hmm. right now, right? And they've they travel so well around the world, partially because they draw on such a collective understanding of, of entertainment. Um, but Jonathan has this, I think, a really strong compass for it. Um, and it really boils down to him being a fan of these things. Like he, mm-hmm. he looks at things or reads things or reads his own stuff and is like, is this something that I would want to see? And I think that that perspective has served, served him very well. And it's part of the reason why I have a lot of trust in him artistically it doesn't mean i agree with everything he certainly doesn't agree with everything i bring to the table but ultimately i trust him and that's far more important um because you're never going to because for me to need every my, all of my ideas to be approved it would be a position of tremendous arrogance right and 
you've got to let someone come in who's like, I really know better than you at this moment. And you'd be like, okay, you're the boss and I'm not. So yeah, let's go with you. And you just don't want those moments where you, you, you know, you really do put your, your creative choices in somebody else's hands. You just don't want those moments to be turned into these, these like cautionary tales. And they never have for me, you know, working on his shows. Um, so I'm always happy to, to kind of go, go plunging together. And also because if something in the same way, I think that he relies on his actors to, you know, bring things to his attention, you know, and he's very willing to listen to that. Um, and that's not always the case, but it certainly has been the case in my years working with him. So speaking of his taste level and things being universal around the world, can we transition and just say congratulations? Oh my God. Warrior is coming thank back. You. Yes. Warrior's, obviously, yeah. we are a little thrilled um, or <laughs> a lot thrilled. Uh, very, very excited um, for you guys. And doing so flippin' well on HBO. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, just, and it has been, I have to say, selfishly, very gratifying that yes. finally the people around me are like, have you seen this show? And I'm like, Jesus Christ, I've been trying to get you to watch this show for like fucking years, guys. Yeah. Like, and they're like, really? Oh, this is that show? And I'm like, yeah. yes, yeah. this is the goddamn show. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, the, I mean, I can't tell you how gratifying it is. Um, I think I can speak for the rest of the cast and team when I say like the amount of gratitude we have for the fan base, for you guys and the people who supported the show um, and who continue to support the show and who eagerly await its return. And now we're feeling that pressure. Um, you know, we, I will uh, calmly wait as long as necessary. Oh my God, we're fretting all the time. We're just like, oh my God, what if we're not as good? Like, we better get on it. Like, it's a oh, lot. No, of... not as good. Come on. No, no, I mean, look, look I, I, you know, I think that we were always sort of this like little show that could. Um, and I don't, I don't think anybody is sitting, like, no one is patting themselves on the back. You know, we're, we're just kind of like, you know, while they really gave us was a chance to screw this up, you know, like there's a, there's a certain <laughs> amount of expectation now that we are aware of. Um, but, uh, you know, the gifts that warrior has given me, uh, you know, Banshee being my first show was such an incredible learning experience in every single dimension and warrior was also a learning experience, but it also gave me these sorts of um, like a family and a sort of richness of environment and things like that, that you really don't have any right to expect on a job you, but if when they happen, it's, it's such a gift. And so the um, return to the show is uh, incredibly joyful, not just for the ability to continue the story, continue, you know, Bruce Lee's legacy and continue uh, working on a narrative that was, that did feel stillborn to us. Um, it's also this incredible opportunity to reunite with um, people that I love in a place that I love and work as hard as we can, you know. Um, and Warrior was one of those shows where, uh, you know, you just, all I want out of a show ultimately is to have a great working experience, good work environment, and to like work as hard as I possibly can, leave everything out there and walk away from the show. If it bombs, it bombs, but to be able to walk away and say, I did everything I could do. You know, and maybe I didn't quite get there, 
but I did everything I could do. And I don't have any regrets on that level. And that was, you know, where is that kind of show? So I'm looking forward to having an opportunity again to, to, to put everything I can into it. Um, yeah, those are the idea of like phoning in a job is like a nightmare yeah. to me, you know. And I think for most actors, you know, yeah. I think probably for most people, but certainly for most creative people, yeah. because you never go into it with that expectation. You never go into exactly. this line with that expectation. Yeah. Um, oh, so, you know. so the only like Brett said the guy that played Iron Fist phoned in his job. <laughs> <laughs> did he? Did he say that? Oh, yeah. oh, oh no! Yeah, yeah. He started, and it, we were like, "Do you want that off the record?" He was like, "No." Oh no! <laughs> let me let me say something. Okay, let me say something. Hey, um, <laughs> Tim was very nice to me. Um, so that you know, just on a personal level, like just interacting with him, he was lovely. But also, uh, and I've said this about like Koji. Uh, I think people, or Jason, or anyone. Uh, people don't understand because they've never done it. So they, they shouldn't understand. They don't understand how hard it is to be a number one. They don't have any idea how taxing it can be. It doesn't always like that, but it usually is like that. Yeah. And uh, if you're doing a show like Warrior or you're doing a show like Banshee with Anthony or what have you, or Jason in this show, or Rosario Dawson in this miniseries I did DMZ in the interim, uh, you're doing a lot of physical work. You're doing heavy lifting emotionally. You're working incredible hours. You're being called to press. You're being consulted on everything. You're, you're functioning like a producer, mm -hmm. right? Because you do have everyone's ear. So unless you choose to just put your head down and say nothing, which no actor does really, um, then you're also now in meetings and you're having these creative conversations, you know, uh, and you're leading a company. The cast looks up to you. The production team looks up to you. It's a huge amount of scrutiny. It's a huge amount of pressure that doesn't, that exists outside of the job. So I will say that anyone who's in the number one position, I give them a huge amount of, of buffer there because that's a job I've never had. And it's hard. It's really hard. Um, so, you know, I, don't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I, I would never put that out there. No, um, we, we but I will say like someone like, uh, someone like Rosario Dawson, I think it's is, is an example of someone who I don't think I've ever seen anyone really do it better, um, which was great to see and just sort of to feel like you have leadership at that level mm -hmm. um, is a huge relief. You know, it does two things. One is it answers a lot of questions about what you have to do. <laughs> you know what's allowed and what's not allowed, mm -hmm. you know? And the same thing goes for a number one who's, who's um, maybe a little less reliable or prone to emotional swings or whatever it might be. Like they are essentially setting the tone for what's allowed, mm -hmm. you know, whether they intend to or not. Um, so I, I was, yeah, I thought she was great. I'm really excited for people to see it, her work in that too. Um, yeah. Well, I think as long as you can keep that sort of Cinemax vibe going, even though you're now in the bigger world of HBO, right, right. <laughs> even though it's the, really the same world, but, um, you know, the, I think those Cinemax action shows just got just it don't right. Game of Thrones. You know? Don't, oh, don't, you know, don't, don't do the Game of Thrones. Okay. 
it's it's funny like Jonathan and I would talk about that sometimes it's sort of like you know we came up together and sort of what felt like guerrilla television <laughs> almost in certain ways yeah. you know yeah, yeah. Um, and there was a huge benefit to you know there was a double-edged sword with Cinemax Cinemax doesn't have a huge viewership but because of that they kind of left us alone you know right. they gave us a lot of leeway and um in that time you're also learning right so you're figuring out how to do things. And if someone's constantly putting clamps on you or giving you rules or, um, you know, censoring you in certain ways and just closing avenues and you never get to try certain things, you know, and then paired with that was this sort of, you know, how, how do we do this? We have $5. Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And so you get into this different place where, um, you know, Greg Gutanis, who was doing Banshee, you know, like saw him do this all the time where it's like, you take this thing that you want to have happen and you like find the essence of it, but the most important thing about it, you make that fantastic, right? And then you, you sort of like jury rig the rest, mm -hmm. you know, to, to create the spectacle that you need, but preserve the part that people actually care about, right? And a lot of the times, I mean, one of the things that Alexa Fogel and, you know, the, the team that put the, that group together and then Warrior together, like, I think they cast it really well. Like they found people that could do those things who could like, I mean, I remember, you, I remember sometimes people would be talking about some set piece they wanted for Banshee or whatever. And I'd just be like, you got Ant and Ulrich, put them in a room and have them talk at each other. I'd watch that all day. <laughs> you know, like I would watch that all day. They're phenomenal actors. <laughs> They have like insanity right behind their eyes all the time, yes. like whenever they want it. Like you could just sit there and just be, something's about to go down, you know, and, and like that sort of thing. And to preserve that energy and then to be able to figure out a way, given constraints, to turn it into something that's just visually incredibly exciting. You know, that that was like, it was such a great uh, learning, like a boot camp for observation of those sorts of techniques. And I think it's, there's a lot to be said for a lot of time and a lot of money, but that has its own traps. It sure you know? does. Yeah. So. Yeah. I don't think it often translates into better in at all. Yeah. I well, think, you know, I, it could if it, it was could. done the right way, but it often doesn't. What, what I'll say is it's the trap is that you basically do the thing you were going to do. You just spend more money doing it. Right. Yes. So I think that, if you, to speak to your point, I think coming in with a sort of mentality of scarcity with large resources can lead you to a place of tremendous invention and, and the firepower to, to create something really breathtaking or spectacular or something like that. Um, but if you come in with sort of like, oh, this is the sort of, you know, we're expecting to have tons and tons of money and tons of tons of time to get small things captured and, and you know then I think you're setting yourself up potentially um, not always but potentially um, yeah well I think when you are functioning more in the first aspect it's more like theater you've got to mm. get a you've got to get it done right you know there isn't the luxury when you're on stage of saying wait a minute I want to say that line differently let's go back you know, you've got to get it done right and you've got to do it right the first time. Well, yeah, so. but to be fair, in theater, you get to rehearse. So you yes. get to, you get yes. to explore a lot of that <laughs> in a well, safe and environment. I think that, yeah, 
in yeah. theater, the stress is, is in the performance in, in television and that type of television making. It's that you never, you know, the, the stress is that you don't have any time. Yeah. And you know, uh, more and more, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. I, I, and more and more, you know, the way that the industry is kind of moving when they're looking to economize um, or where they're looking to consolidate funds in order to redistribute somewhere else to create more spectacle, whatever it may be. There are places where they can, they can squeeze um, where there's no sort of objective metric to realize that you're, you're changing something maybe for the worse, right? And one of those places is, is number of takes, you know, things that are subjective, right? So if I do three takes and you show it to 10 people, there will be a wide range of opinions about which take was quote unquote the best, right? So the illogical extreme of that is like, well, then you might as well do one. If it's that subjective, mm -hmm. as long as there's not a technical problem, then one should be fine, right? And that unfortunately is what you start to feel more and more. The problem is that some actors work very well in those circumstances, some actors don't, and some scenes don't. So some scenes you really don't need to take probably more than a couple of takes if everybody kind of knows what they're doing, mm -hmm. if they're prepared. And some scenes, it's like, maybe you'll get something good, like a, you'll capture something kind of fresh in the energy in the first two or three takes, but then it might take you like 12 takes to really get to, to, to dig all the way through to something else that is interesting. And like takes four through 11 are probably a little bit the same or very small moves because the actor might be sort of figuring out the mechanism. And maybe they're, they're kind of solving one part of it and then another part sort of falls off and then they kind of bolt that back. <laughs> like they, they kind of puzzle it out, but somewhere along the line, it starts to come together and that's what rehearsal is for. And that's what we never get. You don't get rehearsal. The, the rehearsal is really for technical reasons, right? And so for me, I understand why it's happening. Um, I just, wish there was more of the case that we could um we could honor that other side of it from time to time a bit more that we should we could understand that some things some processes are going to take more time uh but that we have to it's an act of faith and you have to trust that you will come to something that you didn't expect but that is sort of magic because it took time because it's not obvious because it's not the thing that everyone expects um and more and more that time is not being accounted for um and people don't want it to be accounted for right so that's a shame i think but it's the reality I feel like that is the case across like a lot of productions not just sort of um budget tight productions i guess um i can't speak to say big budget movies uh i haven't done enough of those but I would say I've certainly felt that in even theater, you know, where, um, you know, especially as theater becomes, as theater continues to be, uh, to have to meet a bar for a certain level of production value, for example, the technical demands go up. And so the technical requirement of rehearsal goes up. And so the artistic exploratory side of it um, may get reduced or 
they will get consolidated into the hands of somebody who can do all of that, the, that decision-making in parallel. So rather than explore it with the company, you know, the director will come in and be like, we're doing this, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and you're kind of like, wait a minute, like in a, in a perfect world, your director comes in and they know, they know everything about your character, maybe more than you do. So everything they say makes sense. Right. right? But um, that's tough to do too, just by the limits of time and the limits of prep. So, you know, if I'm doing my job, if most intelligent actors are doing their job, we've, we've, we've really dug deep into our characters because that's our job. Our job is to be tactical on the ground, go as deep as we can in this one silo while, you know, the rest of the creative team, directors, producers, showrunners, et cetera, they have that high level view. They're seeing the entire terrain. And if you do those things well in a, in a, pleasant collaborative environment, you get the best of, best of both worlds. Someone says, here's the, here's the movement we're going for. And a guy can say, Hey, you know, <laughs> I noticed this line in this scene, this triggered this idea and they go, Oh, that's great. You know, and you work together to get the macro and the micro at the same time. Um, but sometimes that doesn't happen. And they're, and so they'll be like, they'll come in and they'll say, you know, we want you to do this. And they're kind of like, I'm not sure why this makes sense. Right. You know, this actually creates a problem for me to do these things in this scene because then I have to kind of do this non sequitur into this other moment, for example. Um, but no, you know, no one's trying to do that for the most part in my experience. It's just, it becomes a pragmatic limitation at some point. Um, but uh, I think if you go in with the right expectation too, that helps a lot. Like, I don't go in thinking I'm about to give, I'm, I'm about to make art. <laughs> like, um, I hope to, or I hope what comes out is, has artistic merit, but I fully recognize that's not why I'm being hired, you know? Um, so. That is why we love you. I was going <laughs> to say, but it no. is. <laughs> no, I just mean, that's not why you're being hired, right? Functionally, you're, um, you know, you're, you're there to make, you're there to generate the raw materials that will go into the edit. Mm -hmm. right? And if you know what you're about, you can give them something workable. If you're about to call yourself Maybe. a tool, please don't. No, just what? Just, so just don't call yourself a tool. Okay. Oh, no, I don't mind. I mean, I, I love this work and I, I, it's been a huge privilege. It's given me a tremendous life. I just don't think that it's helpful, particularly for, you know, you see this a lot with, um, actors who are less experienced or, or who are younger, newer, whatever. Not that I'm hugely experienced or, you know, way more experienced people than me. I don't mean to imply that, but, you know, at this point I've worked on a, enough shows to sort of gather a data set. Right. And if you sometimes talk to uh, less experienced actors in that way, you realize that they, they don't, um, they may have the hierarchy somewhat backwards. Right. Mm. And that the priority for everyone involved in the production is to create the product, which is this piece of television. Right. And not to create an artistic moment. Right. And that you do yourself a disservice to assume that the latter is necessary to create the former, not just from them. And, and that's not just to be cynical. It, it's also to pay homage to all of the other people involved, the exactly. people, the, yeah. the editors, the writers, the, color graders, the scorers, like all the people that create that moment that you're a part of, right? Yeah. It's like, you don't have to always be 
the 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 guy or the or the woman who's swinging for the fences and hitting that home run right like you you have to get to a place where they can sometimes where they can finish it right where they can make the moment and you have to do your part but sometimes that part's quite humble Mm. some sometimes that part is relatively small you know um you see (laughs) Like I can't tell you how many scenes I've been in where it's like, I'm like, I feel like I'm acting my face off. And then when I go see the final edit, they've like, they've totally moved off me. And they're just like sticking with this other person. And my voice is overcoming. <laughs> and, and it's like, but that's the right choice. That's yeah. the right choice for the moment. That's what's more powerful. That's what's more interesting. You know, mm. that's what people are going to stick with. And by staying with them, they let that moment grow. And they let it become something that would be lost in this sort of back and forth cutting between the two of us, you know? And that's, you know, the rising tide will lift all boats. If people come away from that show and go, wow, I was moved. And then you're going to come across better as a result. Yeah. You know, they'll think better of you. Um, people have been very kind to me in my my career. And I'm, I'm very grateful that they respond to the characters I've played. But, you know... I'm surrounded by incredible people, you know, like it's not rocket science. You know, it's like, they're incredible people, incredible actors, great writers, really generous individuals. And, you know, they allow me to do what I do. And I think we all look good or we all look better than we could have. At least some people are going to be like, you make terrible shows. You know, like, yeah, okay. <laughs> Maybe you think I make terrible shows, but you know, but for, from my perspective, they could be way worse. If you think that's bad, they could be way worse. Um, so. See, this is why we love the warrior cast and crew though, because I think that at least on the outside, it seems like all of you that we talk to in front of and behind the camera, this is how you talk about your art and your, and your, and your job and your, you all seem to have an understanding of that. And that, that it's a, that it's a team job and appreciate it in a different way. And it comes through, I don't know. It's a really, it's a special thing. At least again, (laughs) we are on the outside could be a lot of shit going on that we don't know about (laughs) at Uh, least from what everything we ever hear from you guys is is it's just such a special thing and that we're we're you know that's that's incredibly kind you know you know uh i i I find this experience sums up a lot for me uh on on warrior where i was doing a scene with uh tom and kieran um chow and the cops and I wanted to try something. I don't even remember what it was, but I wanted to try something. I remember approaching Kieran and I said, Hey, I, I kind of want to try this thing. Would you mind if I did this? And, and he just looked at me and said, do whatever you want. He said, do whatever you want. You know? And to me, I was like, uh, it wasn't this disregard. It wasn't like, do whatever you want. I'm going to do whatever I want. Right. It was, it expressed two things for me. One was that he was there to play. And two, that he was a very confident actor, that he, he, was, he trusted himself, that he would be able to make something good out of whatever I happened to throw his way, you know? And oh, I feel Karen. that a lot. <laughs> we love Karen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, he's good stuff. And uh, <laughs> yeah, but everybody, everybody really is. You know, I, I think our show's chemistry could have been really different if Koji was in a different place. And um, as our number one, I mean, he had to focus incredibly hard. Um, but he, you know, is totally game. You know, just no one works harder in that show you know and like again it sets the bar and it tells you what expected of you without having to say anything you know without without playing a um any sort of weird card just does it you know and you kind of go all right cool <laughs> yeah I'll, I'll do that that sounds that sounds like the right thing to do um and jonathan too like he's he's pretty low-key about it um but works incredibly hard you know uh, on scripts and detail and trying to, you know, get that feeling, get that moment, um, make everything make sense, cohere, you know, listen to us. I mean, so much energy spent listening to us, listening to actors and, and things like that. And uh, yeah, so I'm looking forward to just, just to getting completely exhausted again. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. But I think I think what you just said there is a is something that people don't necessarily think about when they're watching performances or thinking about you know a show as a whole is how important the listening is. Mm. Yes, you've got an actor saying his or her lines, but that actor isn't just standing. I mean, very rarely is just standing there alone. If they don't have, if they have another actor who isn't actively listening to what that actor is bringing mm. out and responding appropriately. If they're just thinking about their own lines and saying their lines, if you have two actors just doing lines, you don't have much. But yeah. if you have two actors really listening to each other and you have you know, a cast as a whole who listens and a showrunner who listens and casting directors who listen and understand their role in the whole thing, you know, it really, Yes, Koji is an amazing number one, but an yeah. amazing casting director chose that, That's that right. number one, you know, yeah. Yeah. but it isn't when you can get rid of the turf wars, you know, when nobody cares who gets the credit, it's amazing when you can get things done. Yeah, and I will, I, I'll pitch it back to where we started too, which is, um, you know, that's one thing I, I, I do regret um, not being able to spend more time with the cast of C because of lockdown. Mm -hmm. uh you know their natural limitations to it um everyone was very kind to me um in, in, which i was really grateful for um but you know anytime i got on set with anybody they're they're really good actors they're listening you know they're responding they're listening they're there to be with you um and it was you know it was great it it, it made me if anything more wistful that we could have maybe hung out more, you know, that we could have spent more time together to, to sort of gel socially and and uh, and have that carry across on screen. But you know, needs must. So, uh, but it was it was always great to get out on set and to feel that um, it's such a strong group of of actors, and we've been very lucky in that way again. Um, yeah. Where would I would pay just to be on set to watch Jason Momoa fight? He's incredible. I mean, there's a lot of. Um, I mean, obviously, all, all of the attributes are right out there, but he's also very, uh, very savvy 
um, about scene work, you know, uh, his level of experience shows his level of sort of awareness shows. I didn't have too much, uh, with him in the season, but, um, there's a scene coming up, uh, more towards the end and, um, you know, where he, it's, it's really a, a strong acting moment. He's really addressing his, his army and, uh, you know, he really, I think he crushed that, you know, he, it, it's a tough thing to do that particular, that kind of speech sometimes. Um, and, uh, Dave Batista was really lovely as well. Um, and you see these, you see these people and they're just, they're gigantic. Like, <laughs> like yeah. you know, they're, you, I mean, the same way you would look at like a pro athlete, right? I mean, mm -hmm. I, I mean, Dave Batista was a pro athlete, but like you, they, you, they look like a different class of human. Right, they're, they're like, it's like yeah. you're twice my size, yet you know half my body fat. How did that happen? <laughs> um, but then they would move, and you'd see like how nimble they are, or whatever. And again, you know, you think about you know pro athletes, and you think about the fact that they're gigantic people who are like running as fast as cars or something like that, you know. Mm -hmm. And so when you see um, someone perform like that it's really a treat you get to see that sort of uh adeptness you know it was really fun and he's really stepped it up this season i mean he was great last season but man right from the start he's it's really felt very different for me you know and one season. of the things that i think that both he and um dave batista can bring to the table, which I really, really like is, you know, they have an awareness that their affect brings a, a level of potency that they don't have to really try for. Mm -hmm. So when they play against it, it's, it's just so lovely and they, they will do that. You know, they, they want to do that. They, they're looking for opportunities to do that. They know when to bring the hammer and they know when to, to show something else. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that's very, very compelling. I like that. It's, it's a, you see the opposite sometimes. You see sometimes like when you see a character that's like maybe physically they're quite small or whatever, but they come across as incredibly intense and feral and, you know, like um, like super dangerous or whatever, even though you're kind of like they're not these big hulking you know, creatures or whatever. Um, you know, I, I like that dynamic range. And it's, it's not like Jason with his like knives. <laughs> What? Oh, I was thinking like Jason Tobin with his like <laughs> Yeah, and you know, Jason's not that small or anything. He's just so, he's so just lean. Just next to like yeah. Andrew though. He just looks. I mean, but his, yeah, but like that's yeah. a really good example. Jason is like, and I've talked to Jason about this too, where like Jason's a very fine actor and his, the kind of craziness that he brings to mm -hmm. young Jenny, like he can do that in his sleep. Like he's, yeah. it's so, um, it's not a thing that he has to push and, and, and because he's a good actor, he doesn't push it. Right. He knows to let it out, knows to put it back in the box, but the heart, the parts that really uh, make me admire him is, is when he breaks your heart, you know, then you, you see that because otherwise he'd be a straight up psychopath. Right. Like, exactly. So without that but other he, side, yeah. you've got something really weird. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but then you see him with his father and like, it's just like, that sort of thing Beautiful. is yeah, yeah so well, i know we, i know we've had you for a while but i just before before we 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 wrap up i just have to ask you so and i'm gonna try to to ask this without 
being weird. Um, Always a good setup. Yeah, no, I know, right? <laughs> Great way to begin. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> I, and, and it's one of those things where like, maybe you're super aware of this because you trained your, this is your tool and then you know this already. Uh, but sometimes people aren't. I don't, I don't know. Your voice is your tool and obviously you're probably do a lot of voice training and stuff is so <laughs> uniquely modulated and i'm curious about about i guess if you have done training or if you recognize how uniquely modulated it is because i will tell you that when we did our interview before yeah. um when i went to edit i thought i had done something wrong um <laughs> because i had never seen uh like i pull up you know and i'm used to these sort of like spike you know whatever and it was just this very beautiful solid sort of even and i was like oh shit i fucked up his like whole thing and then i was like oh no it's just this sort of nice beautiful soothing tone like the whole time and I just am sort of in awe because in all the interviews we've done, yours is literally the only one that has ever looked like that. Oh, uh, that probably has more to do with my equipment than anything else. I'll be honest. It is. Um, it is literally uh, not. Thank your you. Equipment, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's that's very kind. Thank you. But uh, I, I'll say this though: I've been around um, truly remarkable voices. Uh, Rob Paulson, who I did Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles with, who's a voiceover god, really. Um, you know, and it was I was very fortunate that he was uh, incredibly generous to me and um, reached out, and we're 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 great friends now. Um, but you know, I remember watching that guy in the booth, and I could hear him in our headphones because we were all getting each other's feed, and I was like, "This sounds ready." Like there was not a pop, there was not a, um, you know, a plosive. There was, it sounded compressed. Like it sounded ready to air. I couldn't believe it. And, uh, and you know, working on Broadway with Ruthie Ann Miles and, uh, you know, Ashley Park and the great Kelly O'Hara, you know, you've, you're working with people who are like, I can kind of do some stuff with my voice. These people, like it's a, it's this other thing for them. It's something they can, it's like they have access to another sense or they can communicate with people telepathically. It's like, you, I would see it happen every night. I'm just like standing there in my weird king and I robe or whatever. And, <laughs> you know, you just watch them find every single person in the house and bring them to them, you know? So I have a, I, I'm, I'm not trained. I have a tremendous amount of respect for the voice and I will take your compliment, but I, I know what, I know what a great voice is. I've been around it. So I, I know what that is. That's, and that's not me, but that's, okay. it is something else. So, okay. but thank you. Well, okay. <laughs> we're gonna we're, I was we're waiting for something so much weirder. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> if you have me on the podcast again, I'm going to start the whole thing like that. Okay, this is going to be super weird. I don't know if it's going to be too weird. And I'm just going to like build expectation for 20 minutes. Season three of Warrior, we'll, we'll, we're going to dig. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Very exciting. Very exciting stuff. Well, thank you so much for spending so much time of your evening with us talking about Sea and Warrior, and we're just so excited thank for both. So and and I'm just, I mean, frankly, we're excited that you're on our screen in between while we're waiting for, for Warrior to come back, and Sea is great, and we're mm -hmm. enjoying it, and can't wait to see what happens the rest of the season. I think you'll enjoy the next uh, four episodes. So seeing the rest of the season. have a good time. Yeah. <laughs> we agreed we weren't going to do that, Kelsey. <laughs> <laughs>